Welcome to Bits of Gold, episode 134. Today's episode is all about the life-changing magic of not giving a fuck. Welcome back to another episode of the Bits of Gold podcast. I'm so excited for this episode today about the life-changing magic of not giving a fuck. Do you spend too much time obsessing over the minute, doing things you don't like or things you simply don't want to do? Do you spend too much time worrying about what you should do as opposed to the things you really want to do? On today's episode, that is exactly what we will be discussing. Today, my guest is Sarah Knight. Sarah is a New York Times bestselling author of the No Fucks Given Guides. With more than 3 million copies in print, Sarah's No Fucks Given Guides have been published in 31 languages worldwide. Her TEDx talk on the magic of not giving a fuck has 10 million views. In addition to writing and speaking, she hosts the popular No Fucks Given podcast, which reached number one on the Apple education charts. And now let's welcome Sarah to the show. Sarah, welcome to the Bits of Gold podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, really excited to have you on. Read your book. I heard your TED Talk. I knew I needed to get you on the show to share your story. I think there's so much in it that we can all learn from. And obviously, you know, the world's taken the book by storm and you've obviously helped impact thousands of people's lives. So I'm really excited to have you share your story today. Well, thank you. You know, it's definitely something that uh, seems to have resonated with a lot of readers and a lot of listeners worldwide over the last seven years or so since the first book came out. So, you know, there's so much of your story that I personally resonated with almost in real time in my own life. And when I listen to your TED Talk, I'm like, so much of this hits home. Well, just before we jump in, can you just share a little bit about who you are, what you've done and what you do today? I'm Sarah Knight. I am currently the New York Times bestselling author of several self-help slash personal development books. Uh, They're collectively known as the No Fucks Given Guides. And the first one was called The Life-Changing Magic of Not Giving a Fuck. And that is also what my TEDx talk was based on. So if anybody has heard of me, it might be because they're one of the 10 million people who saw the TED talk. But I used to be a book editor in New York City. I did that for 15 years. That was my first career. It was what I wanted to do with my life. I thought I was going to make it all the way up to becoming the publisher of my own imprint. But around 2015, I just had a real, I don't know if you'd call it a breakdown, you'd call it a crisis of conscience, uh, just felt like something was wrong with my life and I didn't want to be doing this anymore, this being my career. And it was really hard to let go of that. It was really hard because I just, I'm such a type A overachiever. It was hard to acknowledge that something that I had been defining myself by for so long, advancing in my career as as an editor and, you know, New York City's top publishing houses was something I was willing to maybe step back from. And at the same time, my husband and I were talking about making another big life change, which was moving from Brooklyn, New York to a tropical location. And that was precipitated by the untimely passing of a friend of ours uh, who just didn't make it into work one day. And he was in his 30s and we thought nothing lasts forever. And we keep talking about maybe retiring to somewhere warm. And why do we have to wait until we retire? Maybe we could figure out how to shift our lives around so that we can live in that warm place uh, and still do all the things that we need to do. So I quit my job. And I wrote a book and it became really successful. And we moved to the Dominican Republic where I'm talking to you from today. And the rest is kind of history. Wow, that's a lot. And certainly didn't happen overnight just like that. I have so many questions for you. What came first, the TED Talk or the book? The book came first, uh, and actually the TEDx people with Coconut Grove approached me. A year or two after the book came out, they asked me if I would give a talk based on uh, the topics covered in the first book. So by then, I think I had two or three books on the on the market before the TED Talk got produced. 
That makes a lot of sense. Let's go backwards to more the beginning of your story. Sounds like you had this dream to work in publishing for a long time and you made it there. That's what you're doing and you're on this amazing career trajectory. Do you remember the moment or the thing that made you start to feel, hey, this isn't really the dream anymore? I do remember that moment. It involved passing out in my Manhattan office building in front of my coworkers (laughs) from what I later learned was my very first panic attack. Definitely thought I'd been poisoned, thought maybe I was having an aneurysm, had no idea what was going on, blacked out, passed out, had to be taken to the nurse. There was actually a nurse on on staff at Random House back in the day. And that started me down a path of figuring out what all of this stuff that had been going on with me was anxiety and panic disorder and what the roots of that were. And a lot of the tough questions that I had to ask myself, the answers involved, it's your job. It's your job. You don't want to do this anymore. This is the big problem. This is the thing that's, you know, precipitating all of this, all of this stress and uh, difficulty. And so, like I said, it was sort of hard to listen to those answers in my own head because I was like, that's a huge part of who I am. How can I walk away from it? It's weird when you have a dream or something that you're aspiring to go and do and you're aspiring for that for so long and then when you finally get there and you're doing it and then eventually that dream or your dream evolves or your personal goals evolve and you say this this isn't the dream anymore, that can be a really hard thing to grapple with. Yeah, it's hard for your your sense of self-identity, uh, or at least it was for me. And it's also hard if you're worried about what other people might think. You know, are you worried about what your parents might think or what your bosses or your colleagues might think? Or in my case, I was mostly worried about my authors. You know, I was a book editor. I had a 15-year career. I had multiple New York Times bestselling authors, award winners, you know, people who put their trust in me and their careers in my hands. And t- so to have to tell them, you know, I'm leaving. And I always try to remind myself, look, it's not like you're a doctor while Walking out of the middle of surgery. There are plenty of extraordinarily talented colleagues who are going to be on hand to take over these books in the meantime and usher them into the world and might form as good or better relationships with those authors than I had. But it was really difficult for me to face the prospect of disappointing so many people in the midst of their own big, important career goals. And so that was that was really something I had to wrestle with. But it, it sort of all came out in the wash within the next year or so when I wrote the book and I really figured out how to stop giving a fuck about what other people think. Mm, That's where a lot of the work came about. When you were in the process of figuring out, is this what I want to do or this isn't what I want to do anymore? Do you recall or remember some of the questions or things that you did to try to navigate that piece? Yeah, I mean, part of it was nuts and bolts. Part of it was financial. You know, can I do this? If I can, how long is it going to take? What is my life going to look like? I'm somebody who really values stability and who came from a background where I did not have a lot of money growing up. And, you know, I was living in New York City and and kind of making it. In my view, it was kind of a grand stage. And, you know, the idea of walking away from that and starting over financially was difficult. I was married at the time. I mean, I still am married, but (laughs) I was already married at the time. So we had a, you know, at least a two-income household to work with. Um, So some of it was that. It was logistical. And then some of the other questions I had to ask were, and I, I worked with doctors on this was like at the end of every day, what is making me feel good and what is making me feel bad and figuring out the answers to the bad stuff had a lot to do not with my authors, not with the collaborative editorial process, which I loved, not with working in New York City publishing in general, but the things that were really driving me crazy and making me so unhappy involved working in an office, working for other people, working toward other people's goals and other people's standards and not really having the autonomy that I wanted to make decisions 
things for my own books and for my own authors. And it's just all part of working in a a corporate environment where the structure, if you're one of the underlings, you just have a very limited amount of power and autonomy. And I, I kind of, over time, digging into those questions, realized that I wanted to work for myself and that that was the big life change. It was going to be going freelance and being my own boss. And so that was sort of where I landed. It took about a year to really unpack all of that and make those decisions and make those plans. You also moved in in that process to a tropical island or was the moving that came after you sort of started to establish your business? It was all somewhat simultaneous. Basically, I decided that I was going to quit my job. I made the decision in the summer of 2014, and it took me about a year to save up, to bolster myself psychologically and emotionally to do that, and to strategize, and I knew that I was going to be leaving in June of 2015. When I left that job, I thought I was going to set myself up as a freelance editor and just sort of do the same thing I'd been doing, but for myself. And I had a few clients lined up, and I had my freelance website up and running, and I was ready to go. And then I had the idea for what became my first book. And really what happened was I had had a copy of Marie Kondo's The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, the Japanese decluttering Bible that was all the rage back then. And I was going to send it to my mother, who really needs it. (laughs) And I kept thinking, that's really (laughs) passive-aggressive. I shouldn't put that in the mail. I shouldn't send that to her. I'm going to read it. So I read it. And it wasn't telling me anything I didn't already know about organizing my stuff. I am a very tidy person who hates clutter. But I realized that what Marie Kondo was advising people to do with their physical possessions, I had been doing for my mind. I had been discarding people and tasks and obligations and things that no longer served me and didn't make me happy and organizing what I had left into this new life of working for myself and working from home and being more flexible and that sort of thing. So I had the idea for the book as a result of almost immediately as a result of leaving my job, which I think tells you how much of my mental energy was tied up in working that I suddenly had this you know, enormous amount of creative energy to, uh, to think up a book and write a proposal and sell it within about two months. And then my publishers wanted me to write it really, really, really quickly. So it turned out that my husband and I were selling our apartment in Brooklyn while I was writing the first book. It came out, I had a publication party in New York City in January, in the beginning of January, and we moved on January 30th of 2016 to the DR. So it was all really like linked. (laughs) What was it like when you put the book out? What was like the initial feedback that you got like in the market and in the world? The word that kept coming up was liberating. I started getting messages, you know, just random Instagram DMs or emails from people saying, I bought your book. Somebody gave me your book. I gave your book to my 85-year-old mother. And liberating was kind of the common refrain. And I do like to think that in all of my work since then, I'm giving people permission to act on things they've already sort of wanted to act on. I'm telling them, it's okay, I did it, and things worked out, and you can do it too, and you're allowed to want to be your own person, and you're allowed to value things more or less than other people in your life value them, and kind of organize your life around those things that are important to you. So I was getting a lot of really, really good feedback. And then, of course, the media feedback was a little more like, oh, well, it's just a parody of that Japanese decluttering book, which is what it was intended as. I thought it was going to be this funny book that really is a straight up parody of decluttering, but it's for your mind. And then it just took on a life of its own. And people were so into my not sorry method and so into the idea of maintaining a fuck budget and all of this stuff that I ended up writing a second book called Get Your Shit Together, which was sort of a 
about how I did it all, you know, and how you get motivated and how you set goals and achieve them and get organized and stay organized and all of that stuff. And so then all the rest of the books, there are five now and I have a new one coming out in April, all came from that one little seed of a parody idea, but the rest of them are, are just straight up me. They're not, they're not a parody of anything. Did things go bananas after the TED Talk or do you say like the growth has just been pretty consistent? I would say it's actually been really a long tail. The first book, it wasn't a bestseller right away. It was just selling steady, steady, steady. And then it came out in some other countries. And then there was interest in a film. And then my second book came out. And then they asked me to do the TED Talk. And even when the TED Talk was produced, so I think it was recorded like in February or something, and we got the produced talk maybe in May. It was kind of a slow burn. You know, of course, I was checking the, the stats and everything. And then all of a sudden, one day I woke up and it had half a million views. And then it had a million. And then it had <laughs> two million. And like that really kicked everything into high gear right around the same time. It was around the same time my book You Do You came out, which is all about self-esteem and self-confidence and being the person who you really are instead of the person who you think other people want you to be. Ever since then, it's all been pretty, pretty crazy. <laughs> I got it. You know, it's interesting hearing your story. When you think back to the internal dialogue, the internal voice that you're having with yourself, I'm in this job that was my dream. I want to leave. Okay, I'm going to quit. Looking back on what you've accomplished and the reach that the books have had, what's that like? I mean, could you have ever dreamt that, like when you started writing the book, did you ever think that it would be at the magnitude that it is today? Absolutely not. And part of that is because I am a natural pessimist at heart, but part of it is because <laughs> I had been working in book publishing myself for 15 years and I knew that even some of the best written books and the best ideas, you know, just kind of go nowhere. It just really depends. It's so, we always say in publishing, if we knew what worked, we'd do it the same way every time. You just never know. So I went into it very much expecting the worst and, you know, hoping for the best, but with no preconceived notions of it being a massive hit. I knew it was a great idea. I thought I executed it pretty well, but I just, I was definitely preparing myself for, for it to just not sell very well and go away and then I'll do something else with my life. <laughs> I was not expecting to have a, a rollicking uh, <laughs> business in in seven years in personal development. Before we dive a little bit into the book, I'm curious about the move to the DR. So that's obviously such a big life change. What was the catalyst for that and actually going about doing that? Because you know there are so many people who say, I'm going to do this thing or I'm going to leave this business. I'm going to leave this job. I'm going to leave this relationship. And they just, they stay put. They don't ever make any changes. The original kind of catalyst was that we lost a friend and, you know, it was very sudden and he was very young and it caused my husband and I to think maybe we should start doing more of the things that we have always said we intended to do later in life. In our case, we thought we would retire somewhere tropical and we started thinking maybe we can work it out so that we can just live somewhere tropical and why do we have to wait, you know, another 30 years to do that? Partly, it had to do with, you know, New York City was big and overwhelming and expensive. And I felt like I really went hard in my 20s and early 30s in New York. And I was ready for a slower pace and some enforced tranquility, which I think was really important for the mindset that I was in at the time. As mentioned, I was very panicky and very anxious and stressed out. And I thought it might be good for me to be somewhere where I, I had to just slow down and I had to relax. It wasn't always easy because I'm very goal oriented and I'm, you know, I've got a to-do list and I'm going to check everything off of it. And when I can't do that because the internet's out or it's raining really hard or there's 17 holidays that I didn't realize were coming up because, <laughs> you know, because I didn't know the dates of the, of the local holidays, then it gets a little bit frustrating. So it's definitely a very different way of life. And in terms of how we managed to do it, I will say, for the record, we do not have children. I know that for a lot of people out there, they kind of say, how can you expect me to be able to do what you did? I have a kid or three and it's just too hard. And I understand that. I don't have kids, so 
it's a lot easier to pack up and move your move yourself and move your life. But also, I am very goal-oriented. And Get Your Shit Together actually turned out to be a lot about how, not specifically a book about how I changed my life, but how anyone can by focusing on small, manageable chunks. A big plan is just, just a bunch of small plans kind of added together. So you've got, you know, researching. Where are you going to go? We had a spreadsheet. Panama, Mexico, various Caribbean islands. Do we want to just go to Florida? Oh, no, I don't want to live in Florida. <laughs> um, sorry, Florida. But, you know, so we had that. There was there was learning Spanish. I didn't speak Spanish before I came here. And now I speak it enough to live here. You know, I'm pretty proud of that, that I managed to figure that out. There's just all kinds of little moving parts to a big change like that. So we just tackled them in, in smaller, more discrete parts. That's awesome. Yeah. I think what's really cool about that is so many people say they want to make change. Even something as big as I want to move, even if it's within the US still, it's actually hard to put that into practice. So it's very cool to hear how you actually went about making it happen. Thanks. Yeah. And I think, you know, my philosophy is this works for big life changes and small life changes. It's really just deciding what you want, looking at the different components of what's going to make that happen, and then just starting to do them one at a time, one after another until it's done. Can you talk a little bit about the fuck budget? <laughs> I can. <laughs> so I uh, consider your time, energy, and money, your three core resources to be your fuck bucks. And spending them wisely is creating and maintaining your fuck budget. So the idea is they're not making any more time. You don't get extra time. You have to spend it wisely, right? You can regenerate your energy reserves, but you have to rest in order to get that energy back. And we all know how money works. You know, you can't just make more money appear out of thin air. You need to budget. And so I suggest that people treat their time and energy the same way they would treat the money in their wallet or in their bank account and take into account that these are limited resources that can be spent on things that make us happy or they can be spent on things that make us not so happy. And in the parlance of Marie Kondo, she says, you know, to hold on to things that spark joy. And I say, get rid of things that annoy. Why are you spending your time with people who annoy you? Why are you spending your energy doing things that annoy you? Why are you spending your money on things that don't bring you that joy or that don't serve you in some way? Because I am realistic enough to know that some things we just have to do because, you know, we maybe we're not super happy in our jobs, but we need to go there because we need our paychecks to do things that do make us happy. So there's something to be said for doing something that's a little bit annoying as long as it serves you. What I like to say is a fuck not given is something gained. So anytime you can withhold your time, energy, and or money from something annoying, that means you have more of it to give to something that makes you happy, which is great. How does one tell if they're giving too many fucks about anything really? I say if you're overwhelmed, if you're overbooked, or you're overdrawn, any of those states of being <laughs> result from spending too much time or too much energy or too much money on things. And if you're finding yourself feeling overwhelmed, overbooked, or overdrawn, then something needs to give. One of the tricks that I offer people is you can just as easily schedule downtime into your calendar as you can schedule meetings and parties and doctor's appointments. You can actually put Tuesday night me time in your calendar and treat it like the same kind of event or obligation that you would, you know, if you had to do something and that was your Wednesday night. Like you can have that and it helps you from being overbooked, which also helps you from being overwhelmed. <laughs> so I think that people just have to understand that there's room for the negative space 
in their lives too. There's room to say actively, I will not do that. I don't want to do that. I can't afford that. Those are okay things to say and they keep you from getting overwhelmed, overbooked, and overdrawn. Mm, I love that. I think that that's really powerful advice. How does one actually practice putting no into effect, right? Like you get invited to this thing, you don't want to go. How does one actually start to practice or implement saying no without it coming off as, hey, that person's so selfish? The first thing you need to do is give yourself time. So if anybody issues you an in-person invitation or sends you an evite or an email to something, you should not respond right away. If you're face-to-face with them, you should say, great, need to check my calendar and get back with you or need to check with my partner, get back with you or I'm just going to need a minute, figure out my schedule. Don't feel compelled to respond, yeah, sure, right in the moment because that is how 90% of unwanted <laughs> of unwanted parties and, and, uh, and going to somebody's book club and somebody's gallery opening happen is because we feel this pressure to just say yes in the moment. Give yourself the time and space by actively pressing pause on that conversation and saying, I'll have to get back to you. And then you'll have a minute to really look at, not only look at your schedule and see if you really can fit it in, but think about whether you want to fit it in. I always say that the two, it might be surprising to some people to hear that my two kind of philosophical pillars of the no fucks given philosophy are honesty and politeness. And the fact is, you don't owe anybody anything but being kind and being compassionate, being honest with them and being polite. It is honest to say, I can't make it. You don't have to say, I can't make it because I hate your new girlfriend and I don't want to spend two hours sitting next to her at your party. You can just say, I can't make it. The polite thing to do is withhold the reason why you can't make it. (laughs) You know, you have to use your judgment in these things. But the other side of the coin is people don't even give themselves an opportunity to say no. And I wrote a whole book about this called Fuck No. (laughs) They don't even give themselves the opportunity because they feel guilty. Guilt and obligation are the two main drivers of saying yes to things that we don't really want to do. So much of that guilt is coming from inside the house. You are guilting yourself out of saying a perfectly reasonable no before anybody else even has the opportunity to make you feel guilty. And you have to release have to release yourself from that feeling because if you put yourself in the other person's shoes, would you want them to say yes to something that you knew they didn't want to do? Do you want them to come and sit for three hours at an event that you invited them to if you knew they didn't want to be there? No, you wouldn't want to force that on anybody and they don't want to force it on you either. You have to sort of stop having that immediate guilt response. And if you say no to something and the person says, oh, are you sure? Like, is there any way I can change your mind? That's just a just a regular reaction. We all do it. I catch myself doing it to people and I'm not trying to guilt them. It's just like the polite thing to do is say, oh, but I wish you could make it. And you can just say, yeah, I wish I could too. I'm sorry it's not working out. And usually it ends there. And if you get to that small percentage of time where there is someone in your life who is actively trying to make you feel guilty and who is pushing you and maybe implying or outright saying that you're being selfish for not doing the thing that they want you to do, you can just say, you know, I think that your inability to take no for an answer says more about you than it does about me. I've had that (laughs) conversation with a few people in my life and that usually puts an end to it. Yeah, I would say so. Do you remember when you started to actually make the change in your life and start to implement the practices that are in your books? Do you remember how your life started to change? Or is there a moment where you're like, wow, not giving a fuck is really an empowering thing? 
I would say that when I first started to realize that something had changed in kind of a major way, like I'd always had this kind of contrarian view of life and this very kind of transcendental, you know, I'd rather sit on a pumpkin and have it all to myself than be crowded on a velvet cushion. I was the only high school senior who had a Thoreau quote in her yearbook, (laughs) you know, and I really have always kind of been this person, but been afraid to act on it because I was also a people pleaser and a type A overachiever and a teacher's pet. And, you know, if you want something get done right, give it to Sarah, she'll do it. So when I started listening to the voices in my head and really giving over to my my natural self, which was like, no, I don't really want to do that. Or I'll do that when I'm ready. Or I don't really like that person and I don't want them in my life anymore. I think I became more fun and just more chill. And, you know, I think my husband certainly noticed. I think my family was kind of like, whoa, she's turned over a new leaf. I'm still successful. I'm still ambitious. But I'm just not quite as saddled by that constant stress of sort of acting like a different person than I really am. And that was part of the reason I didn't feel like I could work in corporate America anymore because I just didn't feel free to kind of speak my mind and act the way I wanted to act. But when it became even more apparent was when so many of my friends who hadn't really taken much of an interest in my professional life before sort of started being like, wow, I think I want to quit my job. Or like, maybe I'm going to move. You know, maybe I'm going to uproot my life. Maybe I'm going to do this, that, and the other thing, including some people who made big life changes, not at all the same kind of changes that I made, but nonetheless, they were clearly feeling like there was a blueprint that I had created for doing something like this and coming out the other end unscathed and and even happier. So that was really when I started to notice it was when I had so many friends and acquaintances of mine who started down the path. I really felt like kind of the Pied Piper of giving no fucks at that point. That's awesome. What do you think is the number one thing that prevents people from making the change they actually want to make in their life? I think it's just fear, you know, and and that could be fear of so many things. I mentioned earlier that I really value stability. I certainly don't discount anybody who's just afraid to make a change because they're afraid of any kind of instability that might come from it, whether it's financial or whether it's a relationship, you know, getting out of a long-term relationship and feeling like, I don't know how to be single or I'm going to lose friends. I think that, you know, there's a lot of fear associated with big changes because we don't know what's on the other end. And to go back to the reason why we ended up moving to the DR, it just started to seem like we don't know what's coming tomorrow anyway. We really don't know. Life could change in an instant for the better or for the worse. So maybe start doing now what you really want want to do. Listen to your gut and make the change. And it's also highly unlikely that it's going to go so badly that it can't be salvaged. If you decide to leave your job and do something different and that something different doesn't work out, then you're looking for another job. And like, I don't say that, like, I don't want to be insensitive to anybody who feels like, you know, I can't just kind of be without a job in this wretched economy. All I mean is that we weren't meant to do the same thing. I mean, the average American, I think the average is something like seven careers or at least seven different jobs over the course of their life. Like you weren't ever supposed to be doing the same thing when you were 22 as you are when you're 42 or 52 or 72. So like it's really okay to make these changes and it's okay to make changes in your family dynamic. If you grow apart from or closer to certain members of your family over time, that's okay. It's fine to change that up. You know, we're not always going to have all the same friends we had from the time we were five years old or 15 or 25 years old. And so it's much better, I think, to make those decisions under your own power of your own volition than just let them happen to you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think this is an awesome place to wrap the show and wrap on that. Where can people connect with you, find the books, and listen to your TED Talk? They can go to sarahknight.com, Sarah with an H, and 
find everything. They can find the books. They can find a link to the TED Talks. They can find the journals, the quizzes. The whole no fucks given world is at your fingertips at sarahknight.com. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. All the links for this episode can be found in the show notes. I want to hear from you. What was your favorite bit of gold from the episode? Shoot me a message on Instagram at Goldberg or at the Bits of Gold Podcast. Finally, if you can please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts, it would mean the world as it really helps with growing the show. That's all for today. Thanks for living with purpose today and every day, and I'll see you next time. I love your podcast. This is gold. This is where it's at.